five years, and we are transitioning now into uh, Jordan. And the reason we're doing that is because Israel really cares who's in their country. <laughs> and, uh, and we had a five-year work visa, and we are transitioning now to be—we're going to be working with Syrian refugees in Jordan, as well as Iraqi Christian refugees in Jordan. And we're going to talk a lot about that this morning, but I wanted to go ahead and get that out of the way so I make sure I said it. We are transitioning. And uh, we're very excited about it. We're excited about a lot of things. Um, mostly, uh, I want to say first the, that uh, I am, I have a few different titles. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a career missionary in the Church of God. I'm an ordained bishop. And, and uh, those things don't really matter a whole lot, if we're being honest. What matters, uh, the most important calling that I have in my life is the calling of father. Uh, I'm the father of two beautiful children, Kenneth and Catherine, and my wife Paige are not here with me this morning, and we're so, I, I apologize that they're not here with you, but I've got a secret to tell you. <laughs> are we on the internet right now? We've been, oh Lord help us. All right, let's see what happens then. Uh, I've got a secret to share with you, but, but it's a secret just for me, you, and the internet. Amen? Uh, my wife and I are expecting a third child. Amen? Yes, give it up for God. Give it up for God. It's true. Your pastor said it this morning already. God answers prayer. Amen? And if you pray for something, God will answer your prayer. We prayed and sought the face of God, and we're, we were really wanting to have another child, and lo and behold, God answered our prayers, and we're so excited about that. And uh, my mamma is here with me this morning. Mamma, would you stand up and let them take a look at you? Come on, stand up. Stand up. Isn't she beautiful? Give it up for my mamma. Yes. Amen. Amen. I stayed at my mamma's house last night, and I kept this secret from her until I got here with you this morning. So consider yourself part of the family. Amen. And, uh, and I got to stay at my mamma's house, and I, 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 will, uh, I had a memory last night that I will never forget. I woke up last night. I was sleeping on my mamma's couch because... I'd choose Mamaw's couch over any five-star resort, amen? And so I was sleeping on Mamaw's couch, and I woke up. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. And in the other room, I could hear my mother and my Mamaw praying in tongues and seeking the face of God in the middle of the night. Uh, that is a dynamic, dynamic impression that, that was made on me just last night. But uh, I'm so thankful that I've uh, got roots in the church. Uh, it quite literally saved my life. So... Um, We'll talk about that. But before we go any further, I'm going to read you a verse of Scripture that, that you all know. You've heard it probably 50 million times. But we, we're going to talk about it today. Uh, can we stand for the reading of the Word? Can we do that? This is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's called the Great Commission. Great Commission. And I'm going to read the King James Version. And Jesus came and spoke to them and said, All power. Somebody say all power. One more time, all power. Not some power, not a little bit of power, not half the power, but thank you, amen. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go, somebody say go. Go, therefore, and teach all nations. Let me hear you say all nations. All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, somebody say lo. I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, and I praise you, Jesus. Lord, I worship you, God. I lift your name, King of kings and Lord of lords. No name like the power 
in Jesus' name. No power like the name of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. God, I thank you, Lord, that we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we can gather together in this house and worship the King of kings and Lord of lords without fear of reprisal, without fear of persecution. God, this is America, and we claim Jesus as our King of kings. Lord, I thank you, God. I praise you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm always torn when I speak at churches, especially church like this where I have a lot of family and uh, lots of friends, and, and we've been, a couple, been here a couple of times. Uh, I'm always torn about what, what should I do? Should I, should I preach heavy, uh, you know, conviction, salvation? You know, with my family in the room, you know, we need to preach that salvation. Amen? And so if you're my family, I'm sorry. We, we're going we're gonna to open it up the doors today. We're going to be talking about the family. So... Uh, this morning, I, I was torn, and I, I, was, I was actually praying that I, I want to say that you have amazing leadership in this church, uh, spirit-filled leadership, and you can recognize that spirit, amen? And, and this morning, we, the praise and worship team was up here, and there's a difference between talent and anointing. Now, they're very talented, obviously, but they were anointed this morning, and as we were praying this morning, I, I felt the spirit, I felt the spirit this morning while your praise team was singing, and, and, I, and I thought, well... I guess we're going to go heavy on the conviction this morning. We're going to preach. So uh, let's see what happens. This verse of Scripture, we've all heard it a hundred times. It's called the Great Commission. Okay? I like to say it like this. The Great Commission. Right? Because it is that serious. I mean, it's like you got you got to get serious about it. This is a commission, and, and, and it's the thing. It's like Jesus is calling everyone into ministry right here. Now, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about who I am, but... Uh, I'm a church of God preacher's son. Uh, I grew up in the church. Uh, I grew up. Uh, I grew up right there on the second row, not on that second row, but on second rows just like it all across this nation. I, I, I quite literally cut my teeth on the on the rows of the uh, first pew of the church, and so I grew up in the pastor's home, and that is a difficult job. It really is. And I want to say something before we go any further. As a pastor's son, there's something that I recognize that the hardest job in the church, it's not pastor. I mean, that's a difficult job, but the hardest job in this church is not pastor. It's pastor's wife. It is. Can we give it up for your pastor's wife this morning? Amen. Amen. Thank you. The hardest job in the church, pastor's wife. Second hardest job, pastor's son. <laughs> it is. It's true. And so uh, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the ministry that you guys do. And, uh, and I know that you couldn't do it without her. Amen. And so um, I grew up in the pastor's home, and so there was something that I knew for sure. I knew for sure I was never going to be in ministry. <laughs> Amen? I just knew it. I knew it. I said, I, I coined this phrase, and I thought it was an original thought, but it wasn't. I love God, but I really don't like his children. You know? I, I just didn't. I had that preacher's kid chip on my shoulder, and so I knew, no, nah, ministry's not for me. I'm going to go get rich or die trying, you know? And so, thank God, you got that one. Uh, so so I, I just, I went to Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee. And when I went there, I stayed very, I, I gave those pastoral ministries guys a wide berth, you know. I, I let them do their thing, and I just knew it wasn't for me. <laughs> My first semester at Lee uh, was back in 2001. And uh, for, for the young people in the room, I'll tell you, in 2001, this thing happened called 9-11. 9-11. Terrorists flew planes into, a, into the World Trade Center and, and changed, changed America, changed the course of history, changed the course of my life. 
After 9-11, some of my friends, you, know, you remember, you remember the American flags everywhere on every front porch and every, every bumper sticker had, was American flag, and so everybody got real patriotic, and I, I, got, I felt the same way. And, uh, you know, I love my country. And so I decided, you know what, me and a couple of my friends from college decided, well, let's, let's be real patriotic. Let's, let's, let's go join the military. And so uh, shortly after 9-11, I signed up for the United States Army. I went to the recruiter's office, <laughs> and this guy saw me coming a mile away. I told him, I said, I want to jump out of airplanes and blow stuff up. <laughs> and he said, just sign right here, son, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I did. I did. And I signed up with a few guys, and I didn't know this at the time. They all joined the National Guard, and I joined active duty. <laughs> so when we got done with basic, they all went back to Cleveland, Tennessee, and I went to Korea. So I was in Korea for a year and then deployed straight from Korea to Iraq and, uh, and again, changed the course of my life. And uh, I'm very fortunate for the roots that I have in the church because after that first combat experience, I was in the fight for Fallujah. I lived downtown Ramadi in a combat outpost. I was there for 17 months, and it changed my life. And I came back with all of those issues that you hear about, right? But before I go any further and talk about that, I want to just uh, real quick, do I have any other veterans in the house this morning? If you're a veteran, would you stand up? If you're a veteran, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, even the Coast Guard, Air Force, yes, give it up. Thank you. Thank you, Uncle Paul. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Uh, I'm, I'm a United States Army combat veteran. My dad's a Marine Corps veteran. Uh, my older brother's in the Air Force. My little brother served in the Army. Every man in my family has been in the military. And so I'm very appreciative of any man who, or woman who has signed on the dotted line and given up some time of your life to serve this country. So thank you very much. Um, when I came back from combat, I was dealing with these unforeseen, unseen, what they call unseen scars. Uh, I had PTSD, traumatic brain injury. I had, I had some physical ailments, but the real issue for me was was depression. I was at Lee University, the happiest place on earth. You think it's Disney World, but Lee University is the happiest place on earth. And, and I was at Lee University where it's like youth camp every day. If you don't go to Church of God Youth Camp, you should. Amen? Church of God Youth Camp changed my life. At 14 years old, I was filled with the Holy Spirit at Church of God Youth Camp. So if you don't go to youth camp, if your kids don't go, if your grandkids don't go, they need to go next year. Okay? So I was at Lee University, the happiest place on earth, and just wasn't happy. Uh, I don't know how to say it. I was just not, I couldn't get, I couldn't get there. And I, I was going through a time of depression. And I had these guys come by and, and, and really shook me to my core. And, and fortunately, they invited me to church and hang out and stuff. And so I found this new brotherhood. But most importantly, I was only an hour away from my home church. And so I was driving an hour back and forth to go to church. Shortly after I separated from the military, a few of my friends took their own lives. And I was dealing with the same issues. But because my parents served the Lord and saw fit to raise us in church, I knew where to go for the answers. Amen? If you don't know where the answers are this morning, I'll tell you. They're right here in the altar. And by the way, this altar is here this morning, but the altar can be at your house too. The altar can be at your, in your car on the way back and forth to work. Amen? So, so I got out of the military, separated, was there at Lee, having a great time, and then got called back into the Army. I got called back, and, and, uh, and it changed my life again. 
went back to, the, back to Iraq, and uh, my last tour was in 2011. Separated again from the Army and went back to leave, finished my degree. And in 2012, this guy came to our church, just like, just like I'm here this morning, and he was talking about the school that he had in Israel. And he said that what we really need more than money is we need a couple volunteer teachers. And that, that morning, there was a, a message in tongues, interpretation, and there was this dynamic move of the Holy Spirit. And, and I don't know if you, do you remember this. You know what I'm talking about, Mom? My mother is here this morning. I'm sorry I didn't say that before. Mom, would you stand up? Let them take a look at you real quick. Yes, amen. She's beautiful. Amen. Thank you. This is my mother, church God preacher's wife. That's why I know the hardest job in the church. So I was in, we were in this altar service, and there was a dynamic move of the Holy Spirit, message in tongues, interpretation, and my mother did the interpretation. And she said, somebody's going to support this school other than financially. Other than financially. The Spirit of the Lord sent this message out. And so uh, my wife and I were in different parts of the altar. I was on one side. She was way on the other. And, uh, and we had this eye contact across the altar. And, and you know how it is. You don't talk to your wife about anything serious at church right? You wait for the ride to the Mexican restaurant, right? Right? So we're on the way to the Mexican restaurant, and, and, and here's why, and if you're recently married, I'm going to give you a huge secret right here, okay? All serious conversations should happen on the way to the Mexican restaurant because there's a terminus for that conversation. When you get to the Mexican restaurant, you don't talk about it anymore, right? Okay. I, somebody needs to write that down. Um, so, so we get, we're, we're in the car, head of the Mexican restaurant, and my wife says, I think that was a great message today. I think that was for us. And I said, yeah, it was a good message. I, I, I put money in the offering. It was, it was a good message. She said, no, 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 no. Not the message from, from the preacher, but the message from the Spirit. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, it was, that was great. It was wonderful. And she was like, well, I think that was for us. I think God was, was calling us. And I said, yeah, but did you hear, other than financially, I put money in the offering, so it couldn't have been for us. The reality is, I made a promise to God. I made a deal with God. You ever made a deal with God? Just me. I'm the only guy. I'm the only guy, right? And I've heard many preachers preach against that. So let me just tell you, it's probably not a good idea. But I made a deal with God my last tour in Iraq. And I said, God, if you'll help me get back to America, I'll never leave again. Not only will I not leave America, I'll never leave the Southeast again. That was a deal I made with God. But God had a different plan. He had a different plan. And so my wife said, I think that was for us. And I said, babe, I, no, no, not for us. Not for us. I, I've been to the Middle East. I made a deal with God. I ain't going back. Two days later, Tuesday, we were sit, it was 4 o'clock in the morning. My wife woke me up. She kicked me. And we, we have king-size bed because I'm a big guy. I need to spread out. So she rolled over twice and gave me one of those. And I woke up about 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. It was late. And, uh, and, and she said, seriously, I think that was God calling us. I think that was God calling us into missions. And I said, babe, the Lord don't talk to me until the sun comes up, so we'll talk later. Amen? And so 30 days after that conversation, we found ourselves in Israel. 30 days later, we shut down our life in Chattanooga. I had a job there working at Lee. I was loving, loving life and found ourselves working in the Middle East and when we were recruited, they said, come on out to Israel and teach at our school. And, and, and I, told, I told the guy, I was like, I, I don't know about that. But he said, come on out, you'll be all right. And, and I was still dealing with all of these things, these PTSD, survivor guilt, all this kind of stuff that I was just struggling with. 
And we get there, and, and, and here's the thing. I grew up in a political family. My older brother is a state representative down in Georgia. We grew up marching for the right to life and traditional marriage, and, and we grew up supporting the nation of Israel. We believe that the nation of Israel has a right to exist and defend her own borders and all of those things. And so I thought, yeah, I'll go to Israel and we'll support the nation of Israel. Well, when we got there, they picked us up at the airport and drove us straight to the West Bank. Straight to the West Bank. Ended up in Bethlehem, teaching at the Jerusalem School Bethlehem. And found myself working with Arabs. Arab Muslims and Arab Christians. Now, what you got to understand is, I'm a preacher's son, right? And, and I developed this ability to... And this is not for all preacher's kids, but for me, I developed this ability to, to hate very easily. It was a thing that came very naturally to me. And so when I got out of combat and I came back, that hate came right to me. I mean, it was natural. How many of you know that the, the, the devil will bring an easy sin to you? You know what I mean? He brings you the one you want to do, you know? <laughs> The Lord's not going to approach me with a heroin. I mean, the devil's not going to bring me heroin. It's not my thing. But he'll bring me hate. And he'll make it easy for me. And so I had this deep-seated root of hatred in my heart. And it was taken over my whole life. And then we went to Bethlehem. And I'm working now with Arab Muslims and Arab Christians on a daily basis. It was a constant struggle for me that first year. But I realized... I realized... Jesus Christ didn't just die for me. He, he didn't just die for my memo. He didn't just die for my mama. He didn't just die for the preacher. He died for everybody. Jesus Christ left the second most powerful position in the universe, came to this earth in the tiny, precious form of a baby so that he could be chased his whole life and then eventually killed on the cross for you and me. But it wasn't just for you and me. Jesus Christ died on the cross for everybody. And so it took me some time to realize that. It took me some time to wrap my head around that. And so, fortunately, my wife is a very spiritually, spiritually attuned lady. And, and so she, she, she talked me off the ledge several times, metaphorically speaking. And so, um, so we had this opportunity. And, and we saw in the first year that we were there, Muslim background believers coming to Jesus. Sixth grade, boys and girls making declarations of faith in Jesus Christ. Because in our school, all students are required to do an hour and a half of Bible every day. We, are, we design our classes just like Lee University, West Coast Bible College, you know, uh, Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, message of the Old Testament, message of the New Testament. And I'm requiring everyone from sixth grade and up to have an hour and a half of Bible every day. So what, what does the Bible tell us about that? The word of the Lord is not going to turn back void. What you sow, you will reap. And so as a result, these kids are making declarations of faith in the classroom. In the classroom. And you know what? Oftentimes, it happened many, many times, where we're getting ready to take a test and a student will say, hey, can we, can we just pray that sinner's prayer thing before we start this test? And every time I would do it. <laughs> They, they might have been trying to put the test off a little bit, but I, I, I'm trying to put some names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen? And so it was with that experience when we started to realize, okay, English education is an excellent tool for evangelism. There's something that we don't think about here in America, but in the rest of the world, if you can speak English, that is a vehicle for upward mobility in society. 
If, if you can speak English in China, you make more money than everybody else. If you can speak English in the Middle East, you make more money than everybody else. Okay? And so what happens is we have non-believers sending their kids to our school, knowing that we're going to openly evangelize in the classroom, but they want that English education. They want those high test scores. They want their kids to go to college in America. And so we use that to our advantage. We, we really do. And so we were there in Bethlehem for five years, and, and I'd like to share stories about that, but I want to talk about what we're doing now and because there's, I got something to say this morning that you're not going to hear anywhere else. And I haven't checked the time once, so let me do that. <laughs> All right. Um, we, we found out that that school there in Bethlehem was a targeted, specific opportunity to do uh, missions to Muslims in their, in their territory. And so uh, we found another opportunity to do that. And I'm going to say this, and I'm a little nervous about saying it on the Internet, but I'm going to say it. I thank God for the Syrian civil war. I thank God for the Syrian civil war. Now, you've seen the images. It's a terrible thing. War is hell. As someone who's experienced, I'll tell you, war is hell. But the Syrian civil war has caused something to happen in the Middle East that's never happened before. It's awakened the Middle Eastern church, and it's awakened an evangelistic spirit in the Middle Eastern church. There's this thing back in history called the Pact of Omar. Omar was a caliph, he was a Muslim, and he made this deal with the Christians. He said, you can be Christian, but just pay this tax, don't improve your churches, and don't evangelize. Until eight years ago, the Christians in the Middle East were still doing that. They were still paying the tax, not improving their churches, and not evangelizing. But now, something's changed. Something's changed. And so, what happens is, well, I'll get into what happens, but the Syrian civil war has awakened the church. It's awakened the evangelicals. It's awakened the, the, Methodist, the, the Baptists, Catholics. Everybody is ready. Hey, let's do some outreach. Why? And here's why. In Syria, you have Muslims running from other Muslims. They are running from other Muslims, and they run into the open arms of who? The church. The church. And so I want to tell you a real quick story So I'm going to tell you a quick story, and I, I just uh, I want to share it with you because it doesn't. You're not going to hear it about uh, anywhere else. The news is not going to tell you because it doesn't fit their narrative. Okay. There's a revival taking place in the Middle East. There's a revival taking place amongst the Muslim community that you're never going to hear about in the news. You're not even going to hear about it from other Christians because even me, I, even this morning, I'm nervous about talking about it. Here's what happens in the Middle East: when you're born, you're assigned a religion. My son, he was born in Bethlehem, two blocks from where Jesus was born. I'm pretty proud of that. But he, he was born in Bethlehem, and his birth certificate says, Kenneth Howard Coomer IV Christian. Right there. It's right there on his birth certificate. Now, if you're Muslim, you're born Muhammad, 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 Muslim. It's on there, on your birth certificate. So here's what's going on in the Middle East right now. In the north of Jordan, the northern border of Jordan, there's a little uh, place there called Mafraq. And the northern border of Jordan is much like our southern border. It's very porous, and people just walk across all the time. And so um, these refugees from Syria are walking across the border, and the largest UN refugee camp in the world is right there in Mafraq. About 120,000 people in the, in the camp. 
The issue is that the UN only polices the border of the camp. So inside the camp, it's clan warfare, gang warfare, women can't go to the bathroom at night. It's super, super unsafe. And so what happens is these refugees, they filter in, and then they filter right back out because it's not safe. And so they go into the streets of Mafrak. And who's waiting in the streets? The church. In the camp, you get food, water, and, and, a, and a, like a, a FEMA trailer to live in, okay? And, and so you have, you, you have the ability to live right there in the camp. When you leave the camp, you, get, you have nothing. No food, no water, nothing. But there's a church there in Mafrak that is known for welcoming the refugees. So they go to the church, and the church requires some things of them. If you want our help, well, we need to see you at church on Sunday. We need to see your kids in our school. Uh, you know, this is, this is what we do. You know, we'll, we'll help you, but you got to do some things for us. And so it's not just a handout. They require some things of these refugees. And so they're sowing the seed of the love of the Lord in these Muslims' lives. And here's what's happening. They have this school, and they, and they have the refugee crisis, right? So I met this young man, and he, he, he was telling me about the story about how he had come from Syria, walked down from the city of Homs, H-O-M-S, Syria, and came in to this church, went to the camp, didn't have anybody there, came out, went to the church, and made a declaration of faith in Jesus. Now, that's the beginning of his story. He went down to the, the local refugee office, and much like refugees on our southern border, uh, we, we don't know their names. You know, we don't know who they are. We don't know where they come from, not, not necessarily, and I don't want to talk about politics, but the same way they're in Jordan on the northern border. They don't know who's who. So this young man was born. His name was Muhammad when he was born. He went down to the refugee office, and, and they said, what's your name? They're filling out paperwork for him, governmental paperwork. And he says, my name is Isa, which means Jesus. So he goes to there, and he legally changes his name from Muhammad to Jesus. It's a, it's a common name. It's like Jesus in Hispanic culture, but it's a common name. So he changes his name to Isa. Well, when he changes his name to Isa, he also legally changes his religion. So now he's no longer Muhammad, 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 Muslim. He's Isa, Christian. So then he takes advantage of the refugee crisis situation, and this newly minted Christian gets shipped out to Lebanon. In Lebanon, there's a church that was planted by Muslim background believers who took advantage of the Syrian crisis changed their name, legally changed their religion, and went to Lebanon and planted a church. I'm just excited about the, about the fact that they can legally take advantage of the situation. And that, that's the Syrians in the north. That's, that's our, our school there in the north. We're, we're going to be working there. It's very exciting. And, and again, we're, we're starting their English language program, and it's, it's awesome. But there's something else going on that I, I really want to share with you before I run out of time. And here's the thing. In, in Jordan, they have a law. It's the same law in Israel. You cannot openly evangelize Jews in Israel. You can't do it. It's illegal. They find out about it. They're going to deport you. They're going to arrest you. If the wrong people find out, they'll send a letter bomb to your house. If you're evangelizing Jews. They don't care if you evangelize Palestinians. You know? So that's why we ended up working with them. In, in Jordan, it's the same law. You cannot evangelize Jordanian citizens. Can't do it. 10 million citizens in Jordan, 6.5 million refugees. They don't care what you do with the refugees. 
you can openly evangelize the refugees without fear of reprisal. And so here's what's happening. Non-believers are coming to Jesus on a daily basis thanks to the Syrian civil war. I know it's a terrible thing to say that I appreciate the war, but I, I, I appreciate the spirit that it's awakened in the Middle East. We also have another school that we're going to be working with in Jordan, and it's important uh, to recognize the fact that there are four refugee communities in Jordan. You have the Palestinians that have been there since the war in 48 and 67. You have the Syrians, which we all know about, see on the news. You have Iraqi refugees, and the Iraqi refugees in Jordan, by the way, are 97% Christian. So I want to say it's the Iraqi Christian refugees. These were people who were literally run out of their house by ISIS, okay? And we have a school there in Amman, Jordan, and we're working with um, the Assembly of God and, and partnering together in this school. And there's a young man I met when we were there. This guy, he actually, he's probably the guy that recruited me to come work in Jordan. This young man who's 15 years old, and he was telling me the story about when ISIS came to his town. And when ISIS came to his town, he was 12 years old. ISIS rolled in with their American tanks and their American guns. And they, anybody been to Mosul, Iraq? Mosul, Iraq, anybody? Just me. Okay, in Mosul, Iraq, this, this young man's hometown, it's, they got one main drag with three traffic circles. And so in Mosul, Iraq, ISIS comes in, takes all the Christians out of their home, and literally the neighbors were saying, that's a Christian house, that's a Christian house, that's a Christian house their neighbors were pointing them out to ISIS. And here's why. The ISIS fighters took the family out of the house, put them on, the, on their knees in the street, and then all the neighbors went in and took their stuff. And so this young man is telling me the story. He's the youngest of five brothers. And he... Um, what we know is this. In the Middle East, it's a, it's a macho society, right? If daddy says it, it's true. End of story. If dad says it, that's the end, Period. And so we know that if you can convert a father, then you've converted the whole family. ISIS knows the same thing. And so they brought all the Christians out. They put them on their knees in the street. And you've probably seen some YouTube videos that happened after that. But they put them on the street. And this young man was the youngest of five brothers. Okay. And they went to this young man's father and they said to him, there's one God. Muhammad is his prophet. Do you accept the father replied to him, La, which means no, and a Messiah, which means I'm a follower of the Messiah. As soon as they said it, the ISIS fighters cut his head off. So this young man, the youngest of five brothers, is telling me this story, and he tells me that they cut his father's head off. Well, here's the issue. Now, because he has brothers, there's a new man, new head of the household. So they go to his oldest brother, they ask him the same question. One God, Muhammad is a prophet, do you accept? La, and I'm a Sihe. I'm a follower of the Messiah. They cut his head off. The youngest of five brothers is telling me this story. They go to each one of his brothers and ask the same question with the same response and the same punishment. This boy was 12 years old when he was watching it happen. 12 years old. With, with the spiritual fortitude that I can't even wrap my head around, they go to this young man, he's 12 years old, and they said, there's one God, Muhammad is his prophet. Do you accept? He said, no, I'm a follower of the Messiah. His mother, smart lady, Christian woman, starts screaming, and she's quoting the Quran to these ISIS fighters, 
the Quran says that you should never leave a mother without a son. And so she's quoting the Quran to them. She's screaming at them. And they said, okay, well, we're not going to kill you, boy. We're just going to teach you a lesson. So they doused him in gasoline, set him on fire. He was 12 years old. His mother, smart lady, had a shawl wrapped around her. She put it on him, doused the flames, picked him up, carried him to the hospital. Problem is that ISIS was in control of the hospital. And they, were, they refused service to the Christians. This mother hitchhiked with a recently burned boy from Mosul, Iraq to Amman, Jordan. Didn't get any medical care until they got to Jordan. If you know anything about burns, you know that if you don't fix those quick, they get infected. So this young man, that I, the day I met him, had just gotten back from a surgery where they were removing some infected tissue. He's 15 years old now. He's going into seventh grade at our school. He's going into seventh grade, but he's going into the English curriculum program. Why? He's burned. He's Christian. But he's going to know English. And English provides him opportunity for his future. English provides him an opportunity for upward mobility. And so I'm very excited because our, our school in Bethlehem was, we, we did twofold ministry. We did Muslim evangelism, and that kind of got the headlines, but we also did Christian discipleship. There are Christians in the Middle East that can trace their heritage back to when James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So, so these Christians have deep roots in the church, and they're very proud of their Christian heritage. And so it's our privilege, it's our blessing, it's our opportunity to, to invest in ministering to the persecuted church of the Middle East. But it's that twofold ministry. We want to do Muslim outreach. We really do because we think Jesus, no, we know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for everybody. He died for Muslims, and he died for me and you too. And so we want to we do Muslim outreach, and, and that's, that's where our heart is, but also we want to serve the persecuted church. And so we're going to be splitting our time in Jordan between the two schools, one in the north with the Syrian refugees and one in the south uh, in Amman with the Iraqi Christian refugees. We're very excited about this opportunity because nobody else is doing it. No one else in the Church of God is doing what we're doing. And, and so we're actually, we've had to set up our own organization, our own, uh, our own organization. It's called Convoy for Care. I'll just plug our website real quick, convoyforcare.com. Uh, you can go check it out. We share some stories, and, and there's, you can follow us there. But it's not about labels. It's not about logos. It's about being able to do ministry in a Muslim country without having to watch our backs, you know. And so we're very excited about what's going on in Jordan. We're excited about the ministry that's taking place in the Middle East. We're excited that churches like Spirit Life and so many other churches across America have decided, you know what? Jesus Christ did die for everybody. And even though refugee is a buzzword and you, it, makes, it either makes you angry or upset or, or, or maybe it makes you feel a little sympathy or empathy, Jesus Christ died for everybody. And in our scripture today, it's the Great Commission. It says, go into all nations. All nations. Teaching them. I never, grew, I never dreamed that I would be an educator. That's not my style. But I realized that education is an, it's the ultimate tool for evangelism. And so I'm very, very thankful that you guys have decided to, to partner with us in this ministry I'm excited about what God is doing. I'm excited to share more stories with you next time I come. But more importantly, I want to talk just for a second 
about the Great Commission, and here's why. It says here, to go into all nations. All nations, okay? Not just our NATO allies and not just the nations where they speak English. And honestly, it doesn't even say just go to the Middle East. It says go into all nations. And I've been kind of struggling with this scripture a little bit because, you know, I'm a, I'm a missionary and I shouldn't struggle with this. This is, this is my calling. This is what I do. Except God convicted me a few, a few weeks ago and he said, I said go into all nations. Some nations don't have borders. And here's what I mean. Sometimes the nation that we're called to do ministry in is the family reunion. Sometimes the ministry that we're, or the nation that we're called to is the Kroger. Sometimes the nation that you're called to do ministry in is your workplace. Sometimes the nation that you're called to do ministry in is calling your crazy cousin that you don't really want to talk to and saying, hey, Jesus died for everybody. I just wanted you to know he died for you too. He loves you. And he wants you to be a part of his family. I've got, oh man, the family's here. I'm going to get deep now. I've got a brother who is not a Christian. He's not. I find it much easier to go to a Muslim man's home and sit in his living room and tell him there is one God. He had a son named Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, was risen from the dead three days later so that you and I could be saved. That's easier for me to do in a Muslim man's home than it is for me to call my brother and say, hey, what you're doing ain't right. Jesus don't like it. I don't either. And you need to, get, you need to straighten up. That's a hard call for me. But we're called all nations. Not just the nation of Islam, not just the nation of non-belief, but we are called to all nations. And sometimes the hardest nation to be called to is your family. Sometimes the hardest nation to be called to is your coworkers. Sometimes the hardest nation to be called to is your old college buddies. It's hard. I've got a friend, I met with him just the other day, and, and to be quite honest with you, when, when, we, when, we were, when we were running buddies, we, we did a little drinking. We went and ate sushi, and this guy ordered a double. Tried to slide one across the table to me, and I had to tell him, hey, man, I don't do that anymore. That was the, I, I stuttered when I said it. I stuttered. I'm your career missionary in the Middle East, ordained bishop, and when he slid that drink across the table, I stuttered. I, I, don't, I don't do that anymore. It was hard for me to explain. I, I don't think that's right. I don't, that, my spirit doesn't bear witness with this alcohol. I'm sorry, I don't do that. That was hard. But I want to encourage you this morning because some of the hardest fought battles result in the greatest victories. Some of the hardest fought battles will result in some of the greatest victories in your life and they will alter the course of history. I had no idea that 9-11 would change my life the way it did. And when I came back from combat, I sure did not think that I was going to be doing ministry in the Middle East. I really didn't. And if you ask many of my family members here, they'll tell you there was no way it was going to happen. But God had a plan. God had a plan for us to go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Some of you, I saw it. I saw it in your eyes when I said it. Some of you already know that family member you're supposed to call. You already do. Some of you already recognize the coworker that you're supposed to talk to. As soon as I said it, a name popped in your head. So I want to encourage you this morning that the Holy Spirit would give you boldness to speak, that the Holy Spirit would give you that 
apple of gold and settings of silver, that word fitly spoken. I want to encourage you this morning because the reality is God died for everybody. Jesus Christ died on the cross for everyone. Not just for me, the preacher's kid. Not just for you that show up on Sunday mornings. But no, he died for everyone. Even your crazy cousin you don't want to talk to. So the Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. If you read the New Testament, you're most likely reading the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul, he said this thing. He said, to the flesh I die daily. To the flesh I die daily. And what he was really saying was, Every day he renews his commitment to Christ. Every day. And here's the thing. If the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, can you play for me? He, he said, I die daily. The Apostle Paul, two-thirds of the New Testament, every day had to renew his commitment to Christ. If that guy had to do it every day, I should probably renew my commitment every couple hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just the rate I'm on, Okay. I already told you somebody tried to offer me a drink this week. So, you know, so this morning, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm on the, every couple of hours, I need to die to the flesh. And I've been here for two hours. So I'm due. And I, I'm just wondering if you would join with me in renewing our commitment to Christ this morning. It's a simple thing. It's an easy thing. But you know what? It's also a litmus test. It lets you know where exactly you are. So if you would, stand with me. We'll, we'll say the sinner's prayer together. I'm going to hand it back over to the pastor. But I feel like even though you know that Jesus Christ died for you, maybe you don't feel like you're worthy. I, I know I really am not. Islam and Judaism, those are, there's a big difference between those and us. And when I say us, I'm talking about Christians big difference between Islam, Judaism is that those are earned salvations in Islam if you live according to this tenet follow this law then maybe if God's feeling gracious on the day you die and you live perfectly then maybe he'll let you into heaven Judaism same way live according to this law make these sacrifices do this thing go to the temple and then maybe you'll make it to heaven the difference is in Christianity we know we can't earn our salvation we accept that we know, look, I, I, let's be honest. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. If I were given the opportunity to die on the cross for my sins, knowing that all I got to do is do this thing and I'll make it to heaven, I'd probably take a pass. I don't want to die on the cross for my sins, and I sure don't want to die on the cross for yours. But there is somebody who did. He lived a perfect life because we couldn't, and then he made a sacrifice that we wouldn't. And so I, this morning, I'm going to pray a quick prayer, sinner's prayer. You, you, I, I hope you've prayed it before. And if you haven't, if today's your first time, I want you to tell me about it afterwards. This prayer is very simple. We just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Wait, wait, wait. Let me explain to you what we're doing first. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Come into my heart and make me new. Make me new. I accept you as my personal Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. That's all we're going to do. So pray with me. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. Come into my heart. Make me new. In Jesus' name, I accept you as my personal Savior. In Jesus' name. Now they're going to play a little bit and sing a little bit, but here's the thing. I, I, I've, this is not normal for me, and I apologize, but 
I, I feel like I feel like God's telling us we need to worship a little bit because the reality is there's a there's a price that's been pray, paid that we couldn't pay, and sometimes you gotta.